give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. Holy Week narrates what it looks like when the full depths of the goodness and steadfast love of the Lord are unleashed in the brokenness and sinfulness of human history. It is a humble king, a gentle king mounted on a donkey. It is a rabbi having an intimate meal with his disciples, washing their feet, insisting that he wash their feet, that he break bread with them. It is the Lord of the universe humbly submitting himself to betrayal and to a mock trial with no justice and to suffering and to scourging and to crucifixion and to burial and to the silence of Holy Saturday. And finally, it is an empty tomb and it is the risen and resurrected and glorious and mysterious presence of the Lord to his fearful disciples. That is what it looks like when the goodness and steadfast love of the Lord is unleashed in all of its depths into the brokenness and the sinfulness of human history. And brothers and sisters, I have been so excited to enter into Holy Week with you together. Because I don't know about you, but I have found it so easy amidst all the events that have been going on in recent weeks to be so easily distracted. To be so easily kind of decentered from what is really real. And I think one of the things that Holy Week invites us to do is it invites us to get back to the basics. It invites us to get back to the center of things and to be centered at the heart of, very, of reality itself Christ, the heart of creation and the fulfillment of all of history. And so this Holy Week, I think, is just such a timely invitation for us to go, yes, it's this person, it's this Jesus, and it is these events that are the defining realities of our lives. This person and these events that are the defining realities of the world in which we live. It's an opportunity to be re-centered, to be centered again. I love the way that Paul put it in the first chapter of his letter to the Colossians. Remember, he's not writing this from the ivory tower. He's writing this from a prison cell. And he says in prison, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. In the midst of all that's happening, I found myself needing to pray short centering prayers throughout the day to center me again in who Christ is and who I am in him. And a friend from Northern California uh, gave me this one. He said, peace of God, hold me together. Peace of God, hold me together. And that resonates with what Paul is saying here. He's saying that in Christ, all, the whole fabric of the cosmos is held together. And every individual detail of our lives and of our nation's history and of all that the world is going through held together in Christ. So that somehow, 
somehow, amidst all the surprises and disappointments and struggles of life, Christians of all ages and generations have been invited in Holy Week to center themselves upon the center, Christ himself, to align themselves with the center of reality, to stay true to Christ, and then to invite others to follow us as we follow Christ. Now this morning, we begin that Holy Week journey of following Christ, of centering ourselves in him by, by following the Christ on the road from Bethphage to Jerusalem, which is about two miles long. We join in with the bustling crowds who are laying out the ancient Near Eastern red carpet of cloaks and palm branches. We join the choir of voices who are hailing this Jewish man from Nazareth in the exalted language of Zion, saying, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna to the son of David. And we experience, we feel the triumphant tone and tenor of the moment. We too desire a king like the crowds. We too desire a Messiah, a savior who will save us from all this chaos who will free us from all our bondage and our threat, and who will lead us into the fullness of life for which we so deeply long. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, the question that's been coming to me as I've been reflecting on this triumphal entry is, why does Jesus enter Jerusalem on a donkey? Why a donkey? It's a simple question, but I think it actually takes us to the heart of Palm Sunday. Now, one thing's really clear. Jesus did not need to ride a donkey. There's no mention of Jesus being tired by his travels. Um, he only had two miles left to Jerusalem, which is hardly a long walk, given how far he had already come. And there's no mention of anyone else, his disciples, his friends, anybody else, suggesting to Jesus that he should travel by donkey. Matthew makes it very clear to us that this was Jesus' idea from beginning to end. He took the initiative. He made the plans, he gave the instructions, and he led the way. He wanted to enter Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, it seems, from what we can see, that Jesus was doing this very intentionally, orchestrating this whole thing to be a grand, symbolic gesture. He was presenting himself as the long-awaited and long-anticipated king of Israel. And because king of Israel, king of the whole world. So his dramatic entrance is intended to make a very pointed statement to the Jewish people and to the Jewish authorities of that day. I am King Yahweh himself, returning to Mount Zion to reclaim the throne and to establish my rightful reign over the whole cosmos. That's why I think, according to Jesus, the events of Holy Week are not the defeat of the king but they are actually the triumph and the unbreaking of his rule and his reign and his power and his authority in the world. The triumphal entry frames the events of Holy Week as the way in which God chooses to rule and reign in the world. So it's no surprise uh, that when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. <laughs> they were saying, who is this? And this is the question that faces anyone that encounters Jesus then and now. Who is this person that says these such audacious things and teaches with such authority? 
who is this person that has the authority to cast out demons and forgive sins? Who is this person that dares to ride into Jerusalem as if he were the rightful king? Now, as we know from the rest of the story, the, the shouts of angelic acclamation soon become shouts of angry accusation. <laughs> the royal Hosanna in the highest soon becomes a ruthless cry, crucify him. So even in the midst of all the joy and festivity of this, of this triumphal entry, we're reminded, we're reminded of the fickleness of the human heart. One moment centered upon Christ, as we were talking about earlier, and the next moment decentered, and more than decentered, maybe in a place of stubborn resistance. So I think that one of the things that the narrative of Palm Sunday invites us to pause and ponder is this What is the posture of my heart? What is the posture of my heart amidst all the hustle and bustle, amidst all that is going on? Am I really centered in Christ? Am I anxious? Am I afraid? Have I become decentered in some way? What is the posture of my heart? Part of the beauty of Holy Week is that it invites us to ask this question to get straight to the heart of things. Am I a person? I've been asking myself this question this week. Am I a person who is anchored in Christ? Anchored in Christ as a friend, anchored in Christ as a spouse, anchored in Christ as a parent, as an employee, as a leader, as a neighbor. I mentioned earlier the book Sounding of the Seasons by the great the English poet-priest Malcolm Geith. And he has a, his reflection, his sonnet on Palm Sunday really presses into this dynamic of the, the fickleness of the human heart. He imagines the scene of Palm Sunday with Jerusalem as the human heart that Jesus is seeking to enter. And so I want to read this to you briefly. Now to the gate of my Jerusalem, the seething holy city of my heart. The Savior comes, but will I welcome him? Oh, crowds of easy feelings make a start. They raise their hands and get caught up in the singing and think the battle won. Too soon they'll find the challenge, the reversal he is bringing. Their tunes will change. I know what lies behind the surface flourish that so quickly fades. Self-interest and fearful guardedness. The hardness of the heart, its barricades. And at the core, the dreadful emptiness of a perverted temple. Jesus, come. Break my resistance and make me your home. Malcolm Geith has this wonderful way of, of taking us into the depths of the scene and kind of bringing us face to face with the depths of our own hearts. And then he always has a turning point at the very end of his sonnets that is somewhat unexpected, but brings this, this aha moment of grace. And I love the turning point here. It's the perverted temple is what he's left with of our own hearts. And then he says, Jesus, come. Break my resistance and make me your home. That's precisely what Jesus is seeking to do in his triumphal entry. It's the heartbeat of Palm Sunday. 
And one of the marvelous things about Matthew's retelling of this story in particular is that he doesn't want to just have us see that Jesus is the king coming to make us his home. But he also wants us to understand the character, the deep inner character of this king. He's actually the only one out of all four gospels that includes this tiny little adjective in verse five. Verse five, he says, behold, your king is coming to you humble. That's the adjective, humble and mounted on a donkey. If you read Mark's retelling, if you read Luke's retelling, if you read John's retelling, that word is not there. But Matthew includes that word humble. Now, the Greek word is more akin to the English words meekness or gentleness. So Matthew tells us, I want you to see that gentleness, gentleness is what shapes and defines the way in which Jesus is king. Which begs the question, what is gentleness? <laughs> now, Jesus himself uses this word, this Greek word for gentleness, two other times in the Gospel of Matthew. And I think if we look at them, they help us fill out what gentleness means. The first time Jesus uses it is in the third beatitude of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, or blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, somehow, Jesus here is saying that gentleness has to do with inheriting the earth. <laughs> and, and by implication, with knowing who owns and who gives the earth to the gentle. Now, let's step back for a moment here. One thing's made very clear by Jesus' cleansing of the temple episode that follows his triumphal entry is that gentleness cannot mean spinelessness. <laughs> It doesn't mean no backbone, no brain, no bronze. Gentleness cannot mean being a pushover and being a doormat. It doesn't mean that. See, in the ancient world, gentleness was understood much more in relation to how one controlled and expressed one's anger. Aristotle, for example, argued that gentleness was a quality to be desired because it described the person who feels anger on the right grounds and against the right persons and who feels anger in the right manner and at the right moment and for the right, right length of time. So that's why I like the way that William Barclay, translate, Barclay translates the third beatitude. He says, blessed is the one who is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time, for they shall inherit the earth. You see, in other words, gentleness is about the proper use of power. It's about the proper expression of anger. And gentleness for this reason requires great inner strength, a great strength of character. And it's a strength, I think, that the, that the beatitude points us to that only comes from knowing the deep inner security that God establishes and owns and gives the earth to those who are gentle. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. I think people are able to be gentle when they know that the world and all of its inhabitants are in the hands of God. They're in the hands of God. So that grabbing and getting and pushing and shoving are not the way to life. Gentleness, 
and receiving from God is. Now, I don't know about you, but I felt like this last week, there were a couple moments where the gravity of all that has been happening in the world finally caught up with me. <laughs> I, I think it was Wednesday morning for me where I woke up in the morning and I just had this immediately, this deep underlying sense of anxiety in my chest. Um, and I'm not a person that, that wakes up that way very often, honestly, but I just woke up with it and, and I found myself going, wow, what's, what's going on? So I got in my car, I went to Newport Back Bay and I didn't get out of my car, don't worry. <laughs> and I, uh, I just sat in my car and looked over the view and, and I was just reading the readings that the lectionary was giving us for the day and thank the Lord, Psalm 75 was the reading for that morning. And in the midst of my anxiety, the Lord spoke these words from Psalm 95 into me. When the earth totters and all the inhabitants therein, it is I, the Lord, who keeps steady its pillars. When the earth totters and all the inhabitants therein, it is I, the Lord, who keeps steady its pillars. I found that so helpful. <laughs> I mean, isn't that what's happening? The earth is tottering. The whole earth is tottering and all the inhabitants therein. And, and there are times when I wake up in the morning and I feel like, Lord, I just don't know if I have the capacity to do what I need to do to hold all these things together. Like, Lord, how are you going to hold your church together amidst all this social distancing? Lord, how are you going to give me what it takes to be a shepherd today? to my family and to my friends and to the church that you put under my care. Lord, how are you going to give me what, what it takes to be on social isolation for like a month or two? <laughs> and just that word that when the earth totters, when our life totters and all the inhabitants in it, it is God who keeps us steady, who gives us security, who holds us. I think what Jesus understands in all of his gentleness and as he faces the instability of the crowds and the insecurity of Gethsemane and Golgotha is that God is the stability and the security and the strength of the entire earth, that God holds it all together. Peace of God, hold me together. And so he can rest in that. And it allows him to be gentle. Oh Christ, what can it mean for us to claim you our king? What royal face have you revealed whose praise the church would sing? Aspiring not to glory's height or to power and wealth and fame, you walked a different lowly way. Another's willed your aim. Jesus is the gentle king. He knows the way of life. He knows it's not found in pushing and grabbing and getting because the whole world is in God's hands. And I think that's why in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus brings up this gentle word once again, because this is the other time in the gospel of Matthew where Jesus uses this gentle word, by the way, because he is inviting people to enter into that rest that Jesus knows in the security of the Father. He says this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And here it is, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. 
Come to me and learn from me because I am gentle. I know the Father really well. (laughs) And I am totally assured in the security and the stability and the strength of his character. If you come to me, I will care for you out of that place. Come to me and learn from me what it looks like to experience life in the Father's love, in sync with the Father's heart, in tune with the center of reality, in a place that is secure and cannot be shaken. I can hear Jesus saying to us, I know you're easily distracted. I know you're easily decentered, but I'm a gentle king. I will introduce you to the gentleness of the Father. Come. And find refuge for your weary soul. All of this, I think, is starting to be revealed to us in the first day of Holy Week. As the gentle king rides his donkey into Jerusalem, proclaiming that he is king. And that the way in which he will reign is ultimately through the cross. We'll see in the days ahead that the crowds who shouted their hosannas will eventually be thundering their crucify hymns that as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, they did not yet know the depths of their own hearts. But neither did they know the depths of Jesus' heart and of his Father's heart and the gentleness that would be expressed in the days ahead. For as they shout their crucify hymns, divine gentleness speaks from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Brothers and sisters, welcome to Holy Week. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.